Good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. Um, thank you, Pastor Dave, for letting me uh, uh, be here. Uh, by the way, just a, a little short note. I have so grown to appreciate our pastor. Uh, we got to spend... Uh, We got to spend a little time uh, on the river this summer together. And, uh, you know, who he is on stage is who he is uh, on the deck looking out over a river. Just such an authentic uh, man. And he uh, asked me if I would uh, do one of the letters here in these seven letters in the book of Revelation. And I told him that uh, being an avid Chart, uh, Padre fan, I should say. Well, Charger fan, too. Well, maybe not so much. But being an avid Padre fan, I said, any church but the church at Philadelphia. So, <laughs> uh, so we here we are today. If you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn to chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. It's not hard to find. It's the last book in the Bible. And uh, let me pray one more time. Dear God, as we... As we bow ourselves before you to hear your word, Lord, may I not get in the way of what you want to say through this text, through this letter. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Tradition says there is a, a wall where there's an ink stain that still remains, where Martin Luther, early church reformer, uh, is reputed to have had such a tangible, visceral experience with the devil that one night he threw his container of ink at him. Now, whether this is true or not, it symbolized his life and his career and his writings. In fact, one of the great hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, was written by Luther, which speaks of this ancient foe who seeks to work us woe, as he puts it. And we know this, that Luther, of course, is not alone. Uh, such assaults uh, are often made in one way or another, covert or not so covert on all of us. In fact, it's one writer who put it this way, all who attempt for a single day to live a life centered on God and his kingdom will discover they have a battle on their hands, right? Any of us who choose to wake up and devote our day and our mission to serve God, realize that we're going to face, at times, some fierce headwinds. It's a battle that has its sieges and its assaults, its victories and its defeats. It's a battle that we all know is lifelong. It never stops, it never ends. There are these three strands of evil that combine to make this one sturdy cable, if you will, the world and its ways, the flesh and its cravings, and the devil and his deceits, the mastermind behind it all. When we open the book of Revelation, it's as if God, towards the end, though, he pulls back the curtain uh, a bit more to expose this battle we're in, to expose the enemy we fight. We discover here where things are headed. In fact, you can't miss it. The very verse first says, to show his servants what soon must take place. We've all had a fascination with end times, end things, eschatology, final judgment, stars falling from the sky. I grew up in my generation with 
Salem Kerbin, Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth. My pastor in college was Tim LaHaye, uh, uh, author of the Left Behind series. I went to prophetic conferences as a young man where speakers speculated on who the Antichrist was, as well as the whore of Babylon. We were certain the end was near, the rapture was going to come at any moment. I'm still here. Uh, but Revelation, however, uh, as ha already has been mentioned last week, is far more than some eschatological roadmap into the future. Think of it this way, Eugene Peterson put it, that the book of Revelation is God's last word on everything. Be it worship, be it evil, be it prayer, be it politics. And as we're seeing here, it's God's last word to the church, addressed to these seven churches in, in Asia. Churches that it would seem were representatives of the most significant congregations of the day because they were in many ways in some of the most significant cities of the day. And all of them, as we're seeing, were in a fight with the darkness. Each community faced spirits intent upon deceiving and compromising God's people with the aim to undermine and destroy. Spirits that, if we're paying attention, are still very much alive today and are still at work uh, seeking to deceive and destroy churches. Maybe more than ever, as the kingdom uh, gets closer and closer to that final consummation. And so God, uh, in this book, speaks to each church. Think of it as uh, war correspondence, sent to equip for conflict, sent to remind them also these important truths we all need to hear today, and that is that while the powers of darkness have been dethroned and disarmed, Colossians 2.15, they're still active. That though the decisive battle was won at the cross when Jesus came, the devil still persists in fighting. Or I like how Packer puts it, though sin has been dealt its death blow, we must spend the rest of our lives draining sin's lifeblood. It's the world we live in. And so with all of that, we look at this third letter here in chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Let me read this third letter. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, and yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, like the others, this letter is addressed to the angel of the church. 
And maybe it's a reference to the leader, or perhaps it's to the church itself. For every church, like Cedar Mill, has its own collective spirit. Right away, we start into this book, into this language, and we realize we're, our imaginations are called into some vigorous play, as one put it. We pick up this apocalyptic scent, right? Revelation is filled with doomsday themes and bloody dragons and sky battles between angels and beasts, which, when we think about it, is fine in our age. We're comfortable with things apocalyptic in these days, I've noticed. It's how we entertain ourselves. TV shows with The Walking Dead or games like Fallout. We're obsessed today, it seems, with hordes that are stalking undead hordes, alien invasions, robots turning on their masters. As Jousta puts it in his book, How to Survive the Apocalypse, which is really a fascinating book, today, apocalypse sells like mad. But the book of Revelation is a lot more than that. In fact, it gets past the superficial and entertaining, and it gets to the reality of things, and it gets to the real war, and it gets to the real end. So with all that, it might be fair to say that in this particular letter to Pergamum, it was the epicenter of the conflict for, for a number of reasons. As I, I visited Pergamum a number of times, but as I looked and unpacked a little bit more of what's behind this city, I began to realize it really truly was the epicenter of evil. It was a power center. Its geography uh, made it a natural fortress. You go to Pergamum, you have to go straight up. It had to be, by its geographical formation, attractive to an empire like Rome that liked, to, that liked fortresses. Eventually, Pergamon became the capital of the province of Asia. It was referred to by some as the most famous place in Asia. It had a population in John's day of around 100,000. It was perched on this top side at top of a mountain. And if you go there today, you still see remnants of this theater that had a capacity of 10,000 people. That's so steep, it was regarded as the steepest theater in the world. When you walk the steps, it's almost straight up. It's a usher's nightmare. <laughs> but Pergamum was not only celebrating the arts, it was also an intellectual center. Next to Alexandria, it had the largest library in the world. It was home to shopping centers, athletic games, gymnasiums, and baths. You could say that Pergamon had it all. It had one of the few enclosed amphitheaters. But then we begin to see what Pergamon was about. It was not just some place for the elites to come on their vacations. It was a place where people came to watch gore and blood. Because this is where the wild beasts fought. In fact, I read somewhere where I think on one night, 11,000 beasts were destroyed. And it was part of their bloodlust. And that's because, and that leads to the second thing about this city, 
It was the religious center of the day. Here, worship, pagan, worship, pagan idolatry flourished. There were multitudes of heathen temples. If you go up to the top, there's this big flat area, and you can see remnants of all these temples scattered all around. And among its patron deities were Zeus and Aphrodite and Asclepius. I always mess up on his name. But Asclepius, for example, kind of a physician idol, if you will, with the serpent as his symbol, seemed by some to suggest this is what is referred to here in this letter. It's hard to, to know for sure. But adjacent to these pagan temples was a temple to the emperor, in particular Trajan, one of the most ruthless emperors of the day. He was cruel, and in fact, he killed thousands of Christians, Christians who did not participate in this emperor worship, and that's what it was. It was a cult to worship the emperor were considered atheists and haters of the human race. And so it was necessary to eliminate them. So Pergamum, in fact, was known as the capital of Roman persecution. It's here where gladiator games took place, violence was celebrated, pagan feasts, festivals held to honor power and to celebrate the dead. So all of this lengthy, I know, introduction is simply to say to understand this letter, you have to understand it was the center of evil, of unspeakable evil. And in the midst of it was this church, these believers, this community of faith, steep in a fight for its life. And here God sends his letter. And I believe it's preserved intentionally by the Spirit of God for us today. So we have to pay attention. What is God telling us through this letter? Because here is where the enemy had intentions to seduce and corrupt and defeat and destroy. And as I've been pondering this letter and stepping back and saying, so God, what are you saying here? As God does with all of scripture, he's always telling us something about himself, right? Every passage of scripture invites us to step back and say, so what are you telling me, God, about who you are? Because the center of the Bible is God. And here's what I discover. The first thing it, he wants us to know right up front is that God ultimately reigns. With every letter, God begins a state with a statement about himself. Have you noticed? It's how he starts. It's critical. A.W. Tozer has that famous line, what comes into our minds... You know this? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think that's true. What comes into your mind, my mind, when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's what defines us. It's what explains our thinking, our actions. And here... He wants us to know right away in this letter, he is the Lord God Almighty. This one who has come to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8, is the one who is introduced as the one who carries the double-edged sword. 
Now, that may not mean a whole lot to us, but back then, it was the very symbol of authority. It was the symbol of might, of power. And God says, that's who I am. These words were intended in this letter to incite terror in the enemy, a confident faith in those of us who trust him. This is God saying that he is more than sufficient to deal with anything we face, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I was afraid I lost him. But he is. He is, and that's what this word is declaring. Uh, as John chap- or Revelation chapter 1 affirmed, Jesus chapter 1 verse 5 is the ruler of the earth. Chapter 1, verse 18, he alone holds the keys of death and Hades. And here in verse 12, he alone wields the power, the ultimate authority. And Pergamum, you see, boasted that it bore the sword for Rome, which was the symbol of decisive power. But God reminds them right up front in this letter who bears the sword. So the Caesars of the world may boast of their omnipotence, but God is saying, really, you have very little power at all. You are merely transient. Like every leader of every empire, they are all empty suits, right? They are empty suits. Their trappings might suggest a certain weight and gravitas, but they're weightless, Formless nothingness is how Isaiah puts it in chapter 40. Non-entities when placed alongside God. So to those today who seek the headlines, who are curved in on themselves, bloated with an exaggerated sense and convinced of their own clippings, the Xi's, the Putin's, those who like to let everyone know how powerful they are, God reminds them that they are a mere moment that blows away. This is what God is saying in verse 12, the one who holds the double-edged sword. Now notice he goes on in this verse to say what he says in every letter. He says, I know. Have you noticed? I know. Why does God say, I know? Because he wants us to know. That the God who reigns is also the God who is too omniscient to not miss anything. He does not need to be informed. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows every truth yet to be discovered. He knows everything all at once. One could just go on and on with what it means when God says he knows. But here he wants this church to know I know what you're facing. I know the evil in this city. I know your challenges. I know your pain. I know the war you're in. And today, this is God saying, I know the war you're in. And make no mistake, we're all in this war. And in particular, God wants the church to know that he knows their address. Notice again what he says here. 
I know where you live. It's an interesting phrase. This is God saying, I know your address, John. I know your habitation. I know where you are. He knows where all of us are. But he goes on to say, I know where Satan has his throne. And this is what he wants the church to know. It seems to suggest, again, and this is the point I'm making, Pergamum was a particular satanic presence. There was a demonic governance, if you will, over this city. God wants the church to know he's fully aware of this. The question is, the throne of Satan, what is that a reference to? If you go to Pergamum, up on top of the mount is this huge, uh, not really a throne, but an altar to Zeus, who was the highest pagan god. Some say, well, it's an allusion to him. Some would say it's an allusion to the emperor who had his temple there. Or maybe this is an allusion to territorial spirits who make their home, who exercise geographical control over the region. I don't know for sure, but here's what I do know. I've led study tours to Turkey for 20 years. And in all the cities and all the places over all the years I've traveled, I've only had one experience of deep, almost demonic darkness. Want to guess where it was? Pergamum. Pergamum, on one particular itinerary about four years ago, we stayed at a small little hotel in the city. And I remember, when I think back, I remember there was something of a darkness But I went to bed, and about midnight, I had this pressure uh, on my chest, this huge, immense weight that also came at the same moment with all kinds of sense of terror. I I was terrified. I had no idea. I got to a place where I couldn't breathe, and I just said, Jesus, I don't know what's going on, but... I need deliverance, and it was gone. I've had that happen once in my life in seminary, but the only other time was at Pergamum, which tells me what? Tells me something of this evil is deep in this city, was deep in this city, still deep in this place. But nevertheless, God in all of this says, but I know those of you that are faithful, that overcome. He's fully aware of those who endure. He's fully aware of those who reject the darkness. And yet while Christians have been heroic and faithful, they've also vacillated. In each of these letters, we see these these expressions of great God saying, way to overcome matched by, but I have this against you. To say that there's also faithlessness, which leads to the third thing God wants us to know about himself. He reigns, he knows, and he judges. This God who rules and knows holds every life accountable. So he wants them to know, notice again in the text, He says, nevertheless, verse 14, I have a few things against you. 
And he goes on to specify in particular what he has against them. He wants them to know that he's fully aware of faithful, and he's also fully aware of unfaithfulness. There's nothing hidden, as Hebrews 4.13 puts it. All are laid bare before him. Your life, my life. God sees everything. He knows our every intent. And the church of Pergamum needed to know this, for some were caving in, were giving in and buying into false teaching, caving into the paganistic culture. It had to be an immense pressure, all of this evil, this demonic spirits, the allures, the paganism with all of its temptations and sexual immorality, uh, all ganged up on the church. And it was hard for some. And so they caved in. There was this, apparently, this cult of Balaam, as he talks about here. We don't know really anything about it, but it goes back to Balaam, who was this prophet who encouraged Israel to sexual sin and idolatry. And something of this was still going on. In fact, if you go to the book of first, or excuse me, Second Peter or Jude, verse 11, they're dealing with the same heresy. It seemed to capture, be around. And it, again, reminds us that the devil was fully at work. And the only option here, God is saying, is you need to turn, you need to change before it's too late. Because God warns of a certain judgment, one that's both present and future. But the book doesn't end on a negative note. He ends, like most letters, on the positive note to say, but on the other hand, God rewards. For those of you in this world who persevere, who don't cave in, who stay strong at school, strong in your work, committed to your faith, holding to your convictions, God promises a future blessing. We know, we see this all through scripture. Here the symbols are vague, spiritual manna, hidden manna, white stone. You can read commentators that give six or seven guesses. So I don't care to guess, except to say that the bigger point is God is saying, you stay strong, church. You stay faithful. And one day, God will honor and God will reward. So what do we do with these words? What do we do with this letter? What are the lessons? So rather than a few lessons to close, I'm going to raise three questions. Because I think these are the questions this letter is asking. So not to offend here, but I think it's a fair question. Could it be our present obsession with elections and election results and personalities and power and control is a reflection of our own tendency at times to place our hopes in the empire rather than the kingdom of God? Do we, while we would never say this, do we have our own emperor worship? I think it's a fair question, given the fact that politics seems to dominate our age. 
24-7. And I find the church easily gets co-opted by it instead of saying we're another kingdom. Here's the second question. And this really gets to the heart of this book. Are we, are we vigilant? Or are we naive when it comes to satanic forces that are still at work? I'm not trying to suggest here to look for a demon under every bush for sure. Some people go way too extreme. But I wonder in our sophisticated age if we've lost sight of the darkness that is at work 24-7. Could it be just raising the question, not making a statement, but I'm raising the question, could it be behind the violence and anarchy and vandalism in our city is something satanic? You can't help but ask this when you read a letter like this. Like you, sometimes when I travel and I take Max back home and I take Max along I-84 or through the city, my heart just breaks when I see the destruction and vandalism and graffiti. It's like something has taken over this place that I used to be much more attracted to for its beauty. Could it be behind the brutality in the Ukraine, is something more than a, a Russian leader, but a satanic force that has even corrupted the Orthodox Church? I think so. Behind the pompous displays of a Chinese emperor who claims to be the leader of all for the rest of his life, I think there's something satanic there. I think he's far more at work than sometimes we realize. And everything in Scripture suggests that as the times get closer to the end, the forces of evil are only going to show themselves to be more violent. Uh, forces that can only be answered with fervent prayer. I have to say to you, I hope you're doing this, but if you're not, you need to pray over this city every day, every day. You need to pray over this church, over your pastors every day. You need to pray over places like Ukraine and the absolute brutality and evil that's going on every day. Because there's an evil at work in this world. There always has been since Genesis 3. And and Revelation is telling us, warning us, teaching us. Which leads to the third question. Because I think this is what God is saying in this letter. Are we, or asking, are you developing the kind of spiritual depth that is prepared to endure? No matter how difficult the times. I have to stop when I read letters like this and ask myself, as much as I'm trying to stay into my spiritual disciplines and my time in the word each day and my commitment to pray and watch over my soul. Is it enough? Will I, if times do get more difficult and I begin to pay more and more a price because I'm a Christian, 
Will I hold on? Or will I cave in? I read this letter and I realize if I'm going to stay firm, if you're going to stay firm, you can't live this life divorced from the spiritual disciplines. You can't just have a little devotional thought and a little prayer on the way to work and expect that you're going to be strong if the days become more difficult. There has to be a conviction that begins to build in us back to Martin Luther. I went back to that stanza in A Mighty Fortress that I closed with. He wrote these words, and I asked myself, I ask you, are these also your conviction? You remember these words? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is what? Is sure. One little word shall fail him. Oh God, may we, may we be found faithful. May, Lord, in these days more than ever, we hold to truth, stand for truth. We thank you that you know our address. Oh Lord, come and be with us and protect us. Protect your church in Jesus' name, amen.